Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to my guests about the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They choose four things that they cherish and one thing that they loathe and would like to get rid of, something they like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is, I'm delighted to say, one of my oldest acting friends, Paul Bradley. Paul and I first met whilst recording a children's sketch show series for Granada Television in the mid-1980s and went on to record the Kate Robbins show for ITV with the wonderful Kate Robbins and her brother Ted, who's also wonderful. I went on to eventually make a podcast while Paul became Nigel in EastEnders for six years and then the wonderful Elliot Hope in Holby City for ten years. He's also appeared in My Family, Doctors, Bottom, Red Dwarf and The Young Ones, amongst other things. He was in the multi-award winning film The Pianist in 2002. And since his first days as an actor at the Manchester Royal Exchange, more of that in the podcast, Paul has been in a large number of plays over the years. He's also the lead vocalist and guitarist and satellite player in the group The Kippers, spelled H-K-I-P-P-E-R-S. Yes, you see, the age is silent. And maybe that sort of sums him up, really. He's very funny, often very silly, self-deprecating, and yet deeply serious about the things that matter. Paul famously visited Rwanda for comic relief, shortly after the terrible genocide in that country. Again, more of that in the podcast. 
So let's get straight to it and listen to Paul Bradley tell us the five things from his life he'd like to put into a time capsule. My first um, thing to go into the time capsule yeah. is a review I got. <laughs> My first review. And I haven't even got it. But what it was was I, I had a fantastic English teacher at school mm. and um, he happened to be an Irish English teacher. And tragically, he was murdered. Um, his name was Philip Lawrence. Do you remember the case? He was uh, head, he went on to be headmaster of a school in Oh, I do. He in was Vale, and he, he was stabbed to death. Oh my God! He was an amazing man, a really amazing man, really inspiring. And at the time that, and I include you in this, at the time that we started in the in the business mm. uh, or started thinking about it. It was never any, you know, your parents would have going, what, what, <laughs> no. And your school said, what, no, yeah. you can't do that. And he gave me this review. I did a short George Bernard Shaw farce and he wrote this review and it, it just encouraged me. And it was the seed of that encouragement which led me to sort of think, well, perhaps I have got a, a little talent and, you know, if I work and uh, dedicate myself to it, perhaps it might work out. So my first thing going in would be that little review, because even though I don't have it, it could be found because it was in the school journal. But included in that is, because um, I, I sort of, when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, if I was a young actor, what advice would I listen to for people who've sort of coming to the end of their careers, you know? <laughs> or uh, maybe reached it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the other thing is, uh, so encouragement and then support. And my family, even though I remember when I got my first job, first properly paid professional job at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. What a great job. Yeah, it was brilliant. And I phoned up my dad and I said, um, I said, I've got my first professional job. And he said, fantastic. So are you going to settle down and buy a house? And, and I, I said, uh, no, because I'm out of work in six weeks' time. And he went, <laughs> what? They've given you a job and sacked you. <laughs> so he didn't understand. And this time last year in lockdown, I came back to the Royal Exchange uh, and uh, it was a fantastic play. Um, it was about um, the slave trade in Britain. I played Turner. It was an amazing play uh, written by Winsome Pinnock, who was the first um, black woman to have a play put on at the National Theatre. And it was last... Um, this time last year, uh, in fact, it was uh, St. Patrick's Day that we were supposed to open and the director came in and said, I'm really sorry, we, we can't open. Uh. And so I had all that, um, those fantastic memories of starting my career at that theatre and I've always wanted to work there again. And, and I got back there and it's silly things that drive you on but when you go around the theatre there it's got pictures of old productions and I just thought I want to be on that wall you know <laughs> and um, I was playing a small part when I first started actually what was really weird is that I was on the stage crew and um, all the stage crew there used to do a piss take of the production that was going on 
and I was in it and people really loved what I did and came up to me afterwards and said that was brilliant and things like that. And then this one actor uh, said to a director that he'd been offered a part to, I can't do it, but ask Paul, because he was brilliant at that uh, piss take thing. Wow. And not only him, but people wrote to theatres for me because they thought, here's this bloke on the crew. And anyway, the director said, let's just go upstairs and we'll read the part. And I read it and she said, that's great. And as we were going upstairs, I said, this play that's on at the moment, there's a lot of characters that I could play. And uh, I said to her, I've started understudying them. And she said, oh, that's brilliant. Anyway, next day, I come into the crew. I'm still on the crew. (laughs) Yeah. I come in early to set up the show for this, the schoolmistress, it was called, and um, I get paged. Now, at that time, I don't know whether you ever did it, but um, I signed on and I was working at the exchange as well. Of course I didn't. (laughs) How dare you suggest such a thing? (laughs) But because it was a part-time job, I sort of thought, well, if I come off this... I've got to re-sign on and all that sort of stuff mm. again. Anyway, so they used to pay you in cash. And so <laughs> for <laughs> signing on, I was Paul Bradley. But at the Royal Exchange, I was Yanis Lazaridis. <laughs> <laughs> what a career he's had. <sighs> so when, when I got paged, I thought, oh, my God, they've caught up with me. And they, they said, are you Yanis Lazaridis? But he was a bloke who actually existed. <laughs> It was was a mate of mine. Anyway, so I I got really worried and I got taken up to the office and uh, the director said, you told me that you were understudying some of the parts in The Schoolmistress. Have you understudied this part? And I went, no. And she said, oh, well, that's a shame because the actor's off. Could you take over? So I said, give me an hour. I took the script, literally locked myself in the toilet because it was the quietest place there Mm -hmm. and learned it. Uh, I came in, we did two walkthroughs of it in the morning. I went on for the matinee (laughs) and then in the evening and um, I ended up staying on for four weeks. Brilliant. Um, That's as well as doing the other play. Mm. So so that was a sort of start, you know. Um, That's how how I started. But I can understand how you'd fall in love with that. See, I remember being in Manchester with you and we were working in the television you know, so we were drinking in the television. We were drinking. <laughs> we were drinking and doing the occasional working in the television thing, whatever it was. And we went to see Tim McInerney and Trevor Cooper yeah. at the Royal Exchange. And I remember your, I to this day, remember your excitement at going into the building. Yeah. Uh, we went out afterwards for a Chinese meal with them and you told one of your interminable stories where you, <laughs> you hadn't quite worked out what the punchline was going to be. Wasn't Tim McInerney really good? I remember he read the lyrics to a song and it was only supposed to be two lines, but he did the whole thing. It was brilliant, wasn't it? It was brilliantly funny. But he used to be known as the three actors who worked the most, Tim, Mick and Ernie. (laughs) The great thing about Tim is he's got one of those careers where he's either astonishingly successful or nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, I've sat and chatted to him and he will say, I haven't done anything for 18 months. Nothing. Blimey. But you've always worked, Michael. I've always worked, but I'm the sort of person who only ever does one episode of something and then I move on to something else. I think people find me out very quickly. But does that... No, not true. Um, But have you ever been up for long-running things? 
I never have, no. But Benidorm, you've done a few of them. Yeah, that, that's the one thing that I've done over a number of series. You know, Is that but, what you'd call a returning character? A returning character, yeah. rather than yeah. a regular. Yeah. When you did EastEnders, I remember at the time thinking, wow, that's a long time to be in something. And yes. then you went into Holby City. Yes, and I was in there even longer. Mm. Um, but I had real angst about whether I should go into EastEnders. And in fact, my next... So I've done one which is encouragement and support. That that goes into that. Yeah, and it's sad, it's tragic that it is connected to such an extraordinary man. I remember at the time when Philip Lawrence was killed, all the reports from everybody from the school were saying what an extraordinary teacher he was and what an amazing man he was. He was incredible, yeah. It's lovely that you can, in a way, reiterate that because people always think of the tragedy, whereas, in fact, this is a man who brought encouragement to so many kids. I'll tell you what he did as well. He started my love of Shakespeare, really, because he was reading this line and he said, um, what was it, Um, something, something in this sad knot. And he said, what does that mean? And immediately I said, he sat like this. And he went, exactly. Wow. And what it is, is people forget sometimes that he wrote them to be acted. So little lines like that. This sad knot is a man with his arms clenched and folded in front of him. That's right, this sad knot. And it's a great description of somebody. Isn't it just? And the thing about Shakespeare is that I think as human beings, we need to feel that we're connected and that maybe the things that I feel, other people feel. And he can put his finger on it. I remember there was a line, and I was going to uh, include this in my thing not to, um, you know, the, the, the uh, but when I went to Rwanda for comic relief, uh, it, it was one of the most devastating things I've ever done in my life. Mm. Um, and I remember one of the things that um, was very important for the survivors of the genocide was that they could tell their stories. So I I remember you'd get up and you'd meet somebody new and you'd go, please, after a while you'd go, I really, I don't want to hear your story. I can't hear it again. Because it it was so absolutely inhuman, but it was very important for people to be able to put in words their experience and clearly, otherwise people would go, well, it didn't really happen, did it? And I found when I was out there, there was um, a Shakespeare quote that kept coming to me, the worst is not as long as we can say this is the worst. And it's sort of like if you put a bar and say this is terrible, then there's always going to be something worse. Mm. And that sort of appreciation for Shakespeare is is what um, Philip Lawrence gave me. And it's a a lifelong thing, you know. uh, Mm. You find yourselves in situations and you go, well, you know, sometimes you hear a line in in watching a Shakespeare and you go, oh, my God, yeah, that's exactly exactly right, you know. Yeah. I remember you going off to Rwanda. And I, I remember at the time thinking, oh, my word, this will absolutely change your life. Yes, it did. And if it hadn't, and I wasn't really going to get onto it because it's terribly heavy, um, but mm. if it hadn't been for a, a woman who was there, she worked for Oxfam. She was an incredible woman. She lost 
I think, 15 members of her family. She watched her husband being shot at a roadblock. And when we were sat down once, and, and I've kept it, I've got it in a drawer here. We were just talking like this, and she gasped and looked down, and she went, oh, my God. And I went, and she's un, she was unflappable, usually sort of like really. And I said, what is it? And she said, it's somebody's skull. And I looked down and it wasn't, it was a piece of good, you know, you know, the good thing. Yeah. But the fact that she could think that and actually where we'd sat, she had found uh, somebody's knuckle. And one of the worst things that um, I, I remember, because I used to go off on my own and take photos. I took loads of photographs and I was in this classroom where there'd been a massacre and I got I was sort of, my foot was scraping along the floor and I thought, oh, I've got, I've got a, a stone stuck in my boot, you know. So I sat down and I turned the boot round and there were several teeth that I'd stood on. They were children's teeth. Oh, Lord. Um, so it was, and when I look back on it now, um, if it hadn't been for Esther, who took us on this journey, I think I would have gone a bit madder than I did. Uh, she was an incredible woman. And, and what I was telling you about earlier, that um, sometimes you just didn't want to hear people's stories because each one was worse than the one before. After we left, she now lives in Germany. She went back to Germany and she went deaf. And it, it was, um, I think her body's saying, no more, you don't listen anymore. Otherwise, you will seriously damage yourself. So mm. she lost her hearing for about, I think, about three months. And uh, that sort of degree of suffering and extremity is just something you're, you're just not used to, you know. Um, so thank goodness she was there, you know, because she had tremendous hope for people even despite what had happened to her family yeah. and to other people. And it's astonishing that your first instinct on seeing something shaped like that would be to think it was a skull. Yeah, incredible. But you were so used to it that that was the thing that occurred to you. Yeah. That's a horrifying thought, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, she was an incredible woman. Uh, do you remember the, the film Hotel Rwanda? Mm. Well, He's since been discredited. And I remember when the film came out, I chatted to Esther a bit about it. And she was very quiet about him uh, because uh, he, he sort of hailed as this hero who saved a lot of people. In mm. He did save some people, but he also did some awful things, you know. And Esther told me about when she was in one of the... It's, it's funny, I'm not superstitious. and um, But in this hotel where that film is set, Hotel mm. Colleen, the second floor has got this feeling about it and I said to Esther I said there's something about that floor and she said that was the floor where she said I had a room there and we were 12 to a room and the hotel owner came in with the local parish priest and he came into the room and you could tell that he wanted to have this uh, woman who was in the room and uh, he said, you come with me. And Esther stood up and she said, I've got two children here. She's the only one who can get them to be quiet. Would you mind not taking her? 
So he sort of shamefaced left, but he probably she saved her probably from being raped and maybe from being killed. And when you, uh, it's it's like the <laughs> it's like the Spinal Tap thing. It puts things in too much fucking perspective. You know, mm. it was a life changing experience. Did it affect your faith in people? Because you've always been a most positive man in a sense of, you know, things will be okay, you know, if we all just get on, things will sort themselves out. That's always been my attitude that I've got from you is, is that, you know, well, if we all just, you know, come on, we'll be okay, we'll be okay. It was a bit of that. I'm afraid to say, and it probably happens to a lot of people who, um, um, I, I became a bit Bob Geldof when I came back. Um, mm. I, I wanted to do so much because I, I sort of, the widows that I'd met were women who had survived the genocide and they were in the middle of the world in this tiny village. And for me, it's they represented the pilot light of humanity, that if they could keep going after everything that had happened to them, then humanity would be all right and I I, I, I I hung on to that that you know as long as they were alive and and that's why doing stuff for comic relief was so important I felt I had to, had to do it you know um, yeah and a lot of good did happen you know and 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 continues to happen I mean comic relief is an amazing thing isn't it um I have put Richard Curtis in my um um <laughs> I couldn't work out, you were very generous in saying that I looked to the positive side. And when I first thought about this, I was thinking, I can't think of anything negative, you know, to put in the, in, in the, the time capsule that I want to be buried for good. And But in the end, I came up with a huge list. <laughs> and on that list is Richard Curtis. <laughs> for constantly asking you to do things. No, because I went up for um, Love Actually. Ah. I did the table read for Love Actually. And it was really funny because it, because because at half time we're all saying, "Gosh, this this is good, isn't it?" It's really and mm. all these fantastic people, Chris Marshall and uh, Bill Nye and um, Emma Thompson and Martin McCutcheon, all these fantastic people. And and I said, "Yeah, it's it's going to be funny, isn't it?" Because he's going to make the film, and, uh, and none of us are going to be in it. Well, I was the only <laughs> one who wasn't in it in the end. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh my god so, so for a long time richard curtis was on my sort of uh, hate list <laughs> i auditioned for that film and i completely blew it do you know how i blew it at the end of it because i'd known richard for a long time so yeah. it was strange yeah. to be not relaxed with him yes you know to be thinking i'm auditioning so yeah. when it came to the end they said uh, so is there anything you, you you know you want to ask or say about the script or any thoughts and i said yeah i, had, I did have a think actually uh, do you know what i mean i really like the part i'm going for i think it'd be fun to do but i think i'd be much better as a prime minister <laughs> <laughs> And Richard got the joke. He said, yeah, well, sadly, Mike, we're contractually obliged to use this bloke called Hugh Grant. I mean, I don't know why we do it. I said, oh, well, never mind, next time. But they obviously thought I was a nutter. I must have left the room. They went, there's no way we're having that bloke in the film. Well, it's funny. I, I don't mind losing out to people who are good. No. And I did lose out to somebody who was good. So I don't mind. And also, coming back to the thing about um, encouragement and support of your mm. family and your friends, and because uh, you need it as an actor, you need it because you're going to go through some bad times. But um, when my son realised that I was quite upset, because when we watched it first, I was sort of like, 
And he went, well, don't worry, Dad. It's a shit film. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect thing to say. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? But it's funny, isn't it? And you must have experienced it too. Um, when It's all right when people in the business sort of that you don't know don't choose you. But when it's somebody you know, it, it, it yeah. feels a bit more personal, you know. I would be really concerned about calling a friend somebody who really was a friend. Yeah, but one of the things I have learned is that whether you're a friend or unknown, you often get treated badly. I think if I was in somebody's position of, say, uh, employing a mate, I think I'd have the bottle to phone them up and say, listen, you're great, I know you're great, but it just hasn't worked out because of uh, certain things. I'm really sorry. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the hurt is any less from the actor, but it's just a bit more decent, isn't it? Yes. Because the same happened with... um, Ben Elton. I went up for a play in in the West End. Silly Cow, it was called, I think. John French did. Yeah. And, you know, I've known Ben for ages. Since university. Yeah. And my um, son had just been born. And so a sort of run in the West End would just be really good because it'd be in Mm. London, you know. And uh, I, I came auditioned and I just didn't hear. And then literally... 15 years later, I bump into Ben Elton in a hotel in your neck of woods. It was in... Um, Tunbridge Wells. Yeah, it was in Tunbridge Wells. He was doing a, a stand-up tour. And anyway, I saw him in the bar and people were saying, there's Ben Elton there. And, I, and, and so I went up, you know, you big cuddles and things like that. He's, he's lovely, you know. Mm. And I said, Ben, I'm going to say something now, but I don't want you to apologise because I'm over it, but I want to get it off my chest. I said, years and years ago, my son had just been born. I went up for a play in the West End. I don't mind not getting jobs, but nobody told me anything. So when it opened and closed, I presumed I hadn't got it. But, <laughs> but, but no, nobody had informed me. And he went, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, Ben, I don't want apologies, you know. But no. It rarely happens. It's very strange how the whole process of if somebody's interested in you for a part, they will be extremely interested and kind and generous. And the moment they decide they don't want you again, it's as if you've disappeared. Yes. And that is, that's a sort of a traditional thing in yes. acting, the theatre. Yeah. And we get used to it. You, it really comes home yeah. to you, I think. If you ever do anything, I once auditioned with my family. My agent said, they're looking for a family. Wow. So we went and auditioned together. And you know my wife, and you know that she's probably the last person in the world who would want to do something like that. I bribed her into it, I think. Well, I forced her into it by, by first of all, telling the children that there'd be a lot of money involved in it. And they were saying, you've got to do it, Mum, you've got to do it. So she went, oh, for God's sake. We went along for this thing, and the people were so rude. But that's what I thought at the time. Thinking back on it, I thought... Oh, no, actually, that's what always happens. Yeah. They treat you like a piece of meat. I had a similar one when when Matty was quite young. This job came up and they needed a young boy and um, a casting director said, would Matty go up for it? And he was quite shy. And so I calmed him down. We went to the... All the time I'm going... It's two weeks in the Caribbean. It's all this dosh, you know. So you're sort of like going like that, but trying to sort of go, you know, Matty, we're just going in, we're just going, you just be nice to the, the, the nice man. And he had this thing about beards. And we walk in, and the director with the beard goes, Gucci, Gucci, Gucci. Well, he started crying. He hadn't cried in months. And he started, <laughs> and I just went, I'm out. I'm sorry, I'm really, really sorry. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we left, but. Um, 
But yeah, mm. you're right to you know if anybody's listening who's who's thinking of doing it, it's not a it's not a forgiving profession. If you don't get it, you don't get it, and that's it. You're gone. And the so, people don't and come after you and say, oh, I'm so sorry. Very rarely does that happen. You're right. Mainly, the business is not civil. No. You know, they, they tried to do this thing a while back where uh, if you went to audition in two weeks, the, your, the, the um, casting director had to tell you yes or no. Mm. But they don't because if on the first day the person they've chosen they find out has a limp, then they go, right, oh, I better get down. Hang on, Bradley, he hasn't got a limp. <laughs> Let's get him back in. So they don't dare say you're out of it because they're covering rear ends, you know. You're right. But at the same time, it does have these magical things about it. So the idea of you after all those years going back to the Royal Exchange. Yeah. Just wonderful. And one of the other really weird things is that the um, first time I appeared on that stage was with Vanessa Redgrave in Lady from the Sea, directed by Michael Elliott, whose daughter is a great um, theatre director. He was an amazing theatre director. And they flooded the stage. And what was really, really odd in this production that I'd started to do last year, they flooded the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't believe it. I was going, <laughs> the design came out and I went, you're flooding the stage. He said, yeah. I started laughing and they went, why? And I went, no, it's just coming back full circle. Yeah, you, know? you always flood the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and they had exactly the same problems as Lady from the Sea had. Number one, it leaked. And number two, it smelled. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd not learned all those years before. I mean, it was uh, a great place to work. And I once did um, the family reunion when uh, Edward Fox was in it. And, it, you know, it's in the round. And um, he used to mm. come in from, from the outside like that and go around. And people used to lean over the balconies to see him coming on. And you knew when he came on because this was a shower of programs. People <laughs> just knocked their programs off into them. And, and I used to sit in the um, one of the cast members passed on sadly, and then so they, they had an elder actress taking over, and I was prompt, you know, making myself useful in the theatre. And uh, so I sat there and I prompted her, and and I had to do it on the first night. But she used to listen to what people were saying in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the lines, Avril Elgar, it was a sort of very pretentious uh, T.S. Eliot play, The Family Reunion. And uh, one of the lines is uh, Avril Elliot looks up and says, um, he is a doer, we are but watchers and waiters. And somebody in the audience went, oh, they're weight watchers. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great place to work. Brilliant. So what have we put in the time capsule so far? We've put in... The review from Philip Lawrence. That's right, which is support and encouragement. And then we've also put in going back to the Royal Exchange. Was that well, it? I hadn't included. That was a sort of sidetrack. The next thing I wanted to put in was Rick Mail's underpants. You see, typical Bradley. And just when we need to take a short ad break. But we'll be back with Rick Mail's underpants as quickly as we can. Washed and ironed, I imagine. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Paul Bradley, but most importantly, to a detailed look at the underpants of the much-missed and still much-loved Rick Mail. The next thing I wanted to put in was Rick Mail's underpants. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Because he used to have a pair of purple underpants, which were his lucky underpants. And uh, he always used to wear them uh, on stage and things like that. Because one of the things you need as an actor starting out is luck. And um, I mean, Rick and I were, were, were great friends at university. And um, I wrote a show with um, John Otway. Verbal Diary, it was called. And we needed some money to do the set. We had a very clever concept for the set. The set was, uh, it was a, a diary that opened up like that. And it had a 2D set. Mm. So like one of the sets was a pub. And you'd have, um, there'd be a full pint there like that. And you'd drink like that and turn it over and it'd be empty. So it was little jokes like that. But we didn't have any money. So I went to Rick and I said, um, is there any chance you could lend us some money? I said, and he said, yeah, of course. And uh, he said, just give me back what I've um, given to you. He said, because I know you're not going to make any money. I mean, we, we weren't. It was to sort of, uh, uh, I got loads of work from it. It was a brilliant thing to do because casting directors came to see it. I got loads of stuff from it. Um, and sometimes you have to reinvent yourself, you know, don't you, mm. in, in the business. So that's what I did. And um, so... I'd like to put Rick's underpants in because um, they signify luck. And then I'd like to put my band, the Kippers, in as well. And they're sort of linked because Rick came to see the band and he he really liked because they're on the on the lines of the Bonzos and we really used to like the Bonzos and things. And um, anyway, so um, I do this song in it. In fact, I've got some here. How long have you been doing the Kippers? It's about 30 years. Yeah. Um, years and years. And also Kippers with an H. Yeah, silent H in front, because it's yeah. a long story, but there's a band called the Copper Family, which are a real folk band, and there's a mm. band that takes the piss out of them called the Kipper Family that are known as the Kippers. So um, because our music sort of Eastern European-ish, we stuck a small H in front, which Facebook <laughs> won't let you do. <laughs> oh, no. um, but anyway, Rick came to see the show, and one of the songs we did... I wasn't involved, and I play guitar and sing in it. 
um, the Guardian said, I, I sing like a lorry driver, which I, <laughs> I, I take as a compliment. Um, but one of the, the, the tunes that I wasn't in, I had some sellotape to post up a, um, a set list on the microphone yeah. stand. And while they were doing their song, I thought, hang on, this might work. So I started doing this. <laughs> and wrapping it around my head. Anyway, Rick came to it and he said, I love that. And um, three months later, he says, do you want to be in an episode of Bottom? And I said, I'd love to. So I played this burglar. I come in and I get caught and I get sellotaped to the ceiling. <laughs> Rick never, you know, he was like a lot of comedians. They're looking for material the whole time because, of course, comedy eats material. Yeah. And I remember Stephen who writes all the music for the Kippers and who, who subsequently got a Oscar for um, writing the music for Shakespeare in Love. We've been mates for, for years as well. And um, the Pogues drummer is in our band as well. Mm. And um, Shane McGowan, um, I bumped into him at this gig and I'd met him a few times, you know, and I, I met him at this Dr. John gig at Town & Country and he sort of sat there drinking away and, he said, Paul, how are the kippers doing? I said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're doing great. We're doing great. And he said, uh, I must come and see you sometime. I said, Shane, you've seen us. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, did I like you? <laughs> but it was funny because when I left EastEnders, one of the main writers, Tony Jordan, he came to see a kippers gig. Uh, and he invited us all around to his, that was in Flittick. Do you know Flittick is up the M1, Junction 13, I think? I don't know it, but I've seen the sign. We did a hall there, and I think the audience was Tony Jordan and his family and a dog. Um, <laughs> and after the gig, Tony said, oh, come back, come back to the house, come back to the house. So we came back to the house, and he got me in a corner. He said, and I'd left EastEnders about six months ago. He said, come back. I've got this great story. I've got this really great story, you know. And um, he was one of the main, one of the best story writers and, mm. you know, did um, Death in Paradise and Life on Mars. Anyway, we're, we're, we're there at his party. And he, he was trying to get me to, um, to come back. And then he said, look, there's an Oscar winner over there. There's a Pogue over there. And I'm fucking talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'd like to put the kippers in because I've never been brave enough to do stand-up, but it's the nearest I get to doing stand-up because I can do band with the rest of the band. And it's a bit like being, uh, although I play guitar in the band, it's a bit like being a passenger in a Rolls-Royce. They're all such good musicians that I think they make me look good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know you only do it for the money. Absolutely, yeah. But we've stopped paying to do gigs now, so... Um, <laughs> Oh, brilliant. I wonder where Rick's underpants are. They should be in a museum. Of yeah, they should be. Yeah. One yeah. of the greats. Absolutely, without doubt, one of the greats. He was great. He was a lovely man. We were in the same uh, digs at university in the first year, and he was on the ground floor just above the bar, strangely enough, mm. and I was on the 17th floor. And we used to have this code. I used to flash three times, uh, to fancy going for a pint, and, and if he flashed three back, we'd go for a pint. But um, we used to do this thing at, at uh, university where, where uh, on a Monday night um, you could put on whatever you wanted. They, they gave you a small budget. They gave you about £5. So people people did little bits of um, Beckett. and um, Anyway, Rick and Aid 
had themselves sewed into these pink duvet covers <laughs> and came on stage and started doing this hilarious dialogue, which you could just about hear. But on the Tuesday after the Monday night group, you had to not justify, but sort of like say what people could ask you questions and say, well, that was a very interesting adaptation of Beckett why did you have the tree as a naked man weeing which is in <laughs> fact what somebody did do <laughs> and, uh, anyway so it, it came to Rickonade and um, the tutor said well you know that was very very funny um, but what were you and Rick said oh didn't you get it we were God's bollocks <laughs> 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 oh, and it was sort of like uh, side splitting, you know. And yeah. uh, um, we were good mates. We kept up being mates, but his illness changed him an awful lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. After he'd hit his head. Yeah. But I'm still in, in touch with Aid, and and uh, he's good at everything. But he's got pissed off because nobody's ever asked him to be on Desert Island Discs. So what he's going to do is his own live show. <laughs> uh, where he chooses six <laughs> records or, or so, but he plays them himself. Brilliant idea. Brilliant idea, yeah. It's funny when, when you're, I don't know whether you found it, because you were surrounded at university with people who uh, went on to do loads of really good stuff. Mm. But when you're there, you, it, it becomes a bit normal, doesn't it? You, you sort of go, well, everyone must be having these genius comics in, in, in their midst, you know. So, yeah. And also when you're young and at university, you get terribly, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but you sort of think, oh, I'm better than that, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There's a lesson for anybody young listening. Is um, Absolutely. I do remember the first Edinburgh I went up to, having never done any review or comedy sketch stuff or anything. And they said, oh, um, this fellow from last year is going to come in and sort of go through some of the sketches with us. And uh, he's written most of them, actually. And so uh, he's going to sort of like help direct it. And I thought, yeah. I don't need directing. I know what I've read it. I understand what it. I don't need somebody to tell me what it means. I know what it means. And uh, of course, in walked Richard Curtis. And and I think I probably on the first meeting spent the whole time going, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, you've got to, haven't you? You've got to be strong in your own voice. You've got to be that bold, I think. And yes. you can look back and say, oh God, I was a tosser. But um, I mean, sometimes you often think as an actor, your only choice is to say no, mm -hmm. that if somebody offers you something, because it's very rarely that um, what you want to do appears straight away, unless you're mm -hmm. terribly lucky. I mean, it's funny because um, I, I remember I had doubts about doing EastEnders, not out of any snobbishness, but because it wasn't how I saw my career going. I sort of no. thought, well, I'll do sort of small comedy parts and then maybe get character roles on telly. And I mean, you've stolen my career that I really <laughs> wanted. And, and also Jim Broadbent. You know, I look at yeah. something and I go, well, you know, I could do that. Uh, maybe I couldn't. And I remember going to Rick and saying, um, I've been offered, you know, a year's contract at because uh, I start off with four episodes, and then a few months later they said, "Do you want to come back?" And um, anyway, um, he said, "Do it." He said, "Get your fame, and then you'll be able to choose." Yes. And, and which did happen. It opens as many doors as it closes, I think, um, because you get known for one thing. But um, so I was known for one thing for quite a long while. <laughs> Didn't work for a bit. 
then started up and got known for another one thing when I joined Holby. But are you right about that thing about being bold when you're young? I mean, when you think about some of the <laughs> some of the ridiculous ideas that we came up with when we were young, yeah. my favourite yeah. thing we ever came up with was when the people at Granada Television said to us, can you come up with a way of filling nighttime television? We came up with, I don't even remember what the idea was. Do you remember? No. We came up with a programme called The Mail Room, where we would go from the bar when it shut and we would go to the mailroom where the delivery of all the unsolicited scripts was made at about one o'clock in the morning and we were going to open them and read them. Yeah. And that's how we intended to fill nighttime television (laughs) with us sitting there drunkenly reading through scripts. And we actually took the idea to David Lindemann and said, what do you think? And he was interested. Yeah. He said, do me a pilot. Blimey. I know. I mean, that was, that was a great time, wasn't it? At Granada. Um, Great time. We did some really good stuff. But I was very, I don't know if you remember, I was very political in those days. I was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party and I was in a co-op and they came to us and said, do you want to do a kids' programme? So we came up with Bradley, didn't we? Mm. So we sort of devised it and and we wrote one together. And yeah. and, and I remember talking to the producer and saying... Um, God, we've got a fantastic cast here. You know, we've got Sheila Hancock. We've got... Um, Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes. Played you, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, people used to shout out my name when he appeared on the football pitch. <laughs> but um, so I was, I was saying, we've got these fantastic people. We've got a fantastic cast, you know. And uh, he said, yeah, when you came in so low, we, we thought... Because oh, uh, I, I remember talking to my co-op and, and saying, you know, want some good money here it's a series called bradley and i play the lead in it yeah and i remember he said that the bloke who did my negotiation said the casting director said now don't be silly here and he said but i thought i would be so my fee for the bbc i think was 900 per episode Mm. and uh, he said so i asked them for a grand (laughs) and she straight away said yes I don't know, you were probably on seven grand an episode. (laughs) (laughs) I, without doubt, got paid more than you, yes. Yeah, that's the thing, though. If you don't know, it's like that, um, uh, what's the the, the play where um, if you drink drink a draft of wine and you don't see the the poisonous uh, animal that's in it, Mm. then you you don't, if you see it, you're scared. But if you don't, you're... uh, I don't know if that refers to anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, look, I'm going to put Rick Mayo's purple underpants yeah. into the time capsule. Because they represent luck. And the kippers for, what does that represent? The kippers represent... Enjoyment. Enjoyment and delight. That's all it's about. I remember asking Stephen, who's a brilliantly eccentric musician, and after a while I said, what, what is the kippers? What is it about? And he said, I don't know. He said, but I'm hoping that we're going to play at each other's funerals. <laughs> and I said, well, in the long run, that's not going to be possible, is no. it? <laughs> Just a solo. And it's sort of like an anti-fame thing. It's one of the real pleasures. I learned an awful lot watching musicians because what they do is, because there's quite a few solos and somebody will do a solo and that will set the bar. Mm. And without being... You know, they're not trying to outdo each other. They go, okay, that's the bar. I'm going up there. And the next one goes up there. Mm. So by the end of the gig, they're sort of like really going for it, you know. And there's something about 
that being lost in music while you're playing it, and certainly in a band, there's no feeling like it. You sort of like, I'm learning the um, uh, Celtic... um, I'm learning the Celtic ukulele now. <laughs> but, uh, that's helped me through lockdown. <laughs> yeah, just about. All right, so you've got two more things to put into the time capsule, Paulie. I'm going to put an Irish pub in. Oh, I don't blame you. Because we've got a place in Ireland, in West Cork, in a, in a place called Ardgroom. And actually, when we were, we were going there a while ago with a friend of mine from New Zealand, we stopped in Ken Mare in, in this posh hotel and... Uh, and the woman who came to bring us a breakfast said, so, no, where are you going? I said, we're going to Ard Groom. She said, why would you go there? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And we're very lucky to, we're a field away from the sea. We're five minutes away from the nearest neighbour. It's a very small cottage. My mum, when she died, left a bit of money and uh, my parents are Irish and I've always had that connection. Mm. And um, we're amazingly lucky to go there. And there's, there's one pub in the town, uh, the village in. There's another pub on the way in Kenmare, which is the, the the bigger town. And I was outside this pub, and this man came up to me. And he said, "Are you going in?" And I said, "You know, I might." And he said, "He's looking at the menu, <laughs> the, the fish menu outside." And he said, "Can you tell them they've spelt mussels wrong?" <laughs> Only an island. You know? Only an island. The most wonderfully funny things, inadvertently. Certainly in that area, you will have noticed it on the roads. On English roads, when you're driving along and you're coming to a bend, it says slow. And in Ireland, it says slow. And then a little bit further on, it says slower. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like they're watching you. Slow. Slow. Now, slower slow now. That's not slow. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it's just so, it's such a knowledge of humanity. There. Yeah. It's beautiful. There's a pub in Kenmare. It's on the main drag, but it's not a tourist place. Um, there's a lot of diddly-dee tourist music there, but this pub called Crowley's is sort of like you get brilliant musicians in there. Mm. And the last time we went there, there was a sign on the door <laughs> and it said, um, we open at six-ish. <laughs> I stayed in a hotel in Galway where it had a notice in the... Uh, in the foyer that said, the hotel bar will be closed to non-residents between four and five in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) And then it said, we apologise for the inconvenience. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. You know, the the Angelus, when they play the Angelus station, they're they're not allowed to serve, uh, because being a Catholic country, Mm. um, so you you hear the Angelus and they, they say prayers and there's this story about uh, about um, this Englishman going to a pub in Dublin, and uh, he says, oh, he, says he says, I'll have a, a pint of Guinness. He said, oh, God, I'm, I'm really sorry, sir. It's the, it's the Angelus. Uh, he said, we would have to wait for an hour. And um, so it wasn't long to wait. So it, it, the bloke sat down, and, and the barman comes over and says, you look so miserable there. Will you have one while you wait? <laughs> That's exactly the sort of generosity of it. <laughs> Very funny. So the, is it the pub in the village near to your cottage that you want to put in? Yes, it would have to be. I went there a couple of years ago, and I usually do dry January, and I, I happen to be over there, and I, I came into the pub, and um, and uh, she said, pint of Guinness. And I said, no, I'll have a Coke. 
said, what? <laughs> Why? I said, um, I'm doing dry January. And she said, sure, that'll do you no good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sort of pub you want to put into a time capsule. <laughs> Brilliant. I was in... Um, Steve McFadden, actually, he was over that way. He does a lot of fishing. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you, uh, Paul, you got, you got a place over in West Cork. Are you, are you over there now? And I said, no. And he said, well, advise us. Where can we go? I said, right. We're in what's called the Bearer Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And there's a pass called Healy Pass. And it's one of the most amazing views I've ever seen. It's fantastic. If you go one way, the, the, the view is better. So I said, Steve you've got to do Healy's Pass because it's amazing, you know. He said, you go over, and then you go over Healy Pass and you go through an area called Laura and you come to Kilmacaloge Harbour. And I know you like your um, your mussels, the fresh mussels there in, in a harbour pub. You'll love it. Anyway, so didn't hear anything from him. And then a week later, he phones up and he said, I went to that pub. And I went, all right. And you can never tell with Steve whether he's going <laughs> to... Cuddle you or nut you, and and um, anyway, I, I said kill Macalogue, and he said yeah, and I said did you have a good time? He went quiet and he went, I had the fucking best time of my life. <laughs> he sat down there, four of us, we have mussels, chips, two pints each. We sat down there. I go in to settle up, and uh, she says no charge. I went what? She said. You've brought so much pleasure to people. I'm not charging you. (laughs) He said, I couldn't believe it. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I don't blame you. We'll definitely put that pub into the time capsule. I think we've done four. Yeah. Well, the last one is very easy. It's just a list. I couldn't think of anything specific that I, I wanted to bury and not, you know, Mm. um, the, the, the negative thing. So I just wrote a list. Uh, Marmite, Donald Trump, <laughs> Brexit, directors who can't direct, late scripts, bad scripts, Vodafone customer services, <laughs> the National Lottery, I never win, the All Blacks for always winning, Richard Curtis for not casting me in Love Actually, <laughs> Love Actually the film, <laughs> actors who don't learn their lines, The Fiddlers 3, which is just before you're going for a take, uh, the makeup, wardrobe, and sound come up and start fiddling with you. And you're trying to get ready in your head, and they're going like that. And then there's theatre reviewers who slag me off or never mention me. Dogs. That's a controversial one. Dogs. Dogs. (laughs) Just all dogs. Well... I was going to have certain breeds, and then I thought, no, fuck it, put all the dogs in there. <laughs> Your time capsule, you can put them in if you like. <laughs> That's right, because last year when we were doing the, um, the, the, the exchange, I got attacked by uh, dogs and, and bitten on the arse. And, um, <laughs> and this is a really weird thing, <laughs> you know, inexplicable. There is a god up there. In fact, it's, a, it, it's an anagram of dog. Um, but <laughs> I got attacked by these dogs. And I was going in, into the road. I was shouting, saying, help, help. And I put my hand out like that. I'm not kidding you. And it was a white van. And then I looked down and it was police dog control unit. Wow. So I thought, it's their dogs, you know. But it wasn't. They would just happen to be passing. And they came and, and placated the dogs, took them away from me. Um, but I'm still going to, you know. Um, Put them in. I mean, it's a sort of like endless list, really, but um, <laughs> bad location food. <laughs> and then I sort of ended with Michael Fenton Stevens. Yeah, quite. Because, 
he, he's always nicked the jobs that I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> you could have had them. I wouldn't have minded. I think I should interview you for this. Well, somebody will do one day. Yeah. Why not? But that's it. You can do your shopping now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's always lovely to see you, Paul. Yeah. Really lovely. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Paul Bradley. I really did have to go shopping which is a shame, because I could have talked to Paul all day. Another time, maybe. Probably in the pub. Anyway, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe to it on the podcast provider of your choice. Ours is Acast. Oh, and do rate the show and maybe leave a small review. Thanks very much. You can follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter and things like that. And you can listen to the theme tune on Spotify. In fact, you can download it. The composer past the peas music will be delighted. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, much thanks for your support for this podcast. Do tell your friends. I mean, where else would you get a man at the end of a podcast filling time by seeing if, like Paul and his band The Kippers, the Kippers with a silent H, I can play the sellotape. Right, let's see, shall we? go. Clear evidence that playing sticky tape is not as easy as it looks. So do go and see Paul's band the next time you see them advertised and admire his skill. Keep very well. Bye. <laughs>